Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering this morning. I trust that today uh, is a regular, your attendance today is a regular outflowing of a heart that has been meeting with the Lord uh, daily, uh, if not daily, regularly, but hopefully the goal would be daily. I trust that you are compelled to be here. Not compelled by um, what someone might think if you're not here or that you know someone's going to keep you accountable or um, that it's the thing you're supposed to do. But I hope you're compelled by the Spirit of God that is within you to be with His people. Um, I will say that ever since we, the, the moment we went to live stream services for that time, um, I have... Since we've come back, I have not regretted or been grumpy or been whatever about being here with you. Uh, I don't ever want that to happen again. And I uh, personally have taken on that, the idea, uh, every week since uh, those live streams that this is where I should be. And I shouldn't complain about getting to be here or get, shouldn't be stressed about getting to be here. It's helped out my preparation for sermons too because uh, I've looked at my preparations sometimes, you know, because this is a job. This is a job. Um, sometimes when we do jobs, even if it's something we love or are passionate about, we tend to look at them as a job more than something uh, that we're doing for the Lord or something like that. So I know that as the days have gone on, the Lord has ever increased in my heart the desire uh, to preach the gospel, to not take that for granted, and to not take being able to be here with you for granted either. Uh, I want to tell you today as a means of introduction, today um, is our Vintage Church Partner Renewal Day. It's where, as a church, those who have committed to be a part of our church, who have gone through the foundation classes, and uh, who have met the few biblical requirements to be a part of a church, uh, we will commit by re-signing uh, our church covenant. We will recommit to our church today. Um, I, want, I hope that if this is you, if I just mentioned you, if you're a part of this church and you're going to recommit today that you have heavily and deeply considered your commitment to our church. Uh, it was funny because within, within the first pages of our document, in the first pages of our church covenant, it says, I will... Um, I will commit to re-examining my commitment to Vintage Church on a yearly basis. And at one point, several years in, we looked at that document and we said, we, don't, we might like do this personally, but we don't actually do this. So we came up with the idea, it's not a novel idea or anything like that, but we came up with the idea to have a partner renewal service. And so that's what we'll do today. Uh, I want you to consider... Uh, your commitment to our church. I want you to consider all of the ways that you're committed. Uh, I want you to do everything for Vintage Church as you are doing it unto the Lord. And I pray that that is your prayer and your hope and your commitment throughout. Um, I want to say that we are better. We are better together than we are apart. Uh, through all of our differences... 
through all of our quirks, we are better as a unit than we are separately. And I am convinced that it is only by the grace of God that people love me like you love me. Um, because oftentimes, in my own self, I'm pretty unlovable. And I am so thankful that all of this time, you have looked, not past, but you have helped me to grow even in my own faults and my own shortcomings. And I pray that we see that as our charge in the church. That we lean in when we feel like we should pull away. And that we recognize our own need to nurture, to love, and to uplift Christ's bride. There's never more beautiful, I think, of a collective expression of the love of Christ than when the local church is a unified body for the sake of the gospel. I'm so thankful for you. As a, as a shameless plug, we will, have, we will begin foundation classes on March the 7th. So if you are interested in being a part of our church, or you just want to know more about our church and you're not necessarily ready to commit, we have four weeks of foundation classes that you can be a part of to learn more about our church. Those will start on March the 7th, and they will go three, four consecutive weeks, including the 7th. And we'll have them on Sunday afternoons. After church gathering, lunch will be provided. So there's my shameless plug. Miss Kim didn't get excited until I said lunch. That's, that wasn't the exciting part, Miss Kim. I'm just kidding. But if you're interested in being a part of that, which I've already talked with some of you, and I know if you're interested in being a part of that, be there. I want to open our Bibles to Romans 10 again. We're going to continue this, we're going to finish this second part of this sermon on salvation is the Lord's, Romans 10. Today we'll be uh, looking specifically in Romans 10, 11 through 13. Last week we, we looked at Romans 10, 9 and 10, which are very common verses. If you, were, if you were raised in church, you know, you are likely to know the Romans road to salvation. And in the Romans road to salvation is included Romans 10, 9 and 10. Uh, it's also a, a song with an abrupt ending that Stephen's done for VBS. Um, so uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now we discussed last week some of the ways that we confess Jesus as Lord. We, just, we confess Jesus as Lord through our desire for His Word. We, just, we, we confess Jesus as Lord through our desire for the church. We, we confess Jesus as Lord through our desire to grow in sanctification, to grow in being more like Him. But not only in those spiritual ways, there are other worldly ways that become spiritual as we confess Jesus as Lord. We confess Jesus as Lord through the way we handle our business if we're a business owner. Or through the way we work if we are an employee. We confess Jesus as Lord through our trials. Do we lean into Christ in our trials? Or do we look to 
for an answer or an excuse or even maybe sometimes to blame the Lord for our trials. We confess Jesus as Lord through how we handle temptation. I have heard too many people say, this is just too strong for me. This is just something I can't overcome. There's only two reasons for that, friends. The two reasons are, you are a Christian who is not trusting in the Lordship of Jesus, or you are not a Christian at all. Through Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we can overcome trials, we can overcome temptations, we can be good bosses and employees, we can have a desire for the church, we can have a desire for the faith family, we can have a desire for His Word, to grow in the Spirit of God and sanctification. All of these things can be an ever-growing and ever-pursuing desire in our life because of the Spirit of God that is in us. And even more so, when these things are true about us, they will be true about the others that are around us. They will be true about our children. They will be true about our grandchildren. They will be true about the influence of younger men and women, younger teenagers, younger children that we have in our lives. Because the truth of the gospel is this. The the true result of the gospel is this, friends. If we trust in the Lord, if we are following the Lord in the way He has prescribed, those around us will be changed in a positive gospel light. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. But friends, I will tell you, there is a beautiful bonus in that. And that is... That it's for others too. That our confession and their confession grows into a spiritual family called the church. That even the gates of hell cannot prevail against. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. Not only a confession, friends, but we talked about how it shows a heart change sincerity of the heart confession is can be just proof of works right it can just be proof that we're doing good if we are obeying if we're a part of a church if we're if we're um, preaching the gospel etc all of these things it can just be proof of works it is only when confession proof and a heart change are coupled together that we truly have new life. The heart change shows the sincerity of our confession. The heart change also shows that there is a spirit change. Because we have been given through God a, a heart of flesh and we no longer have a heart of stone. We have a new life. We are a new creation. Only a new creation can follow up works with sincere, heart-motivated attitude to the glory of the Lord. This cannot be done by someone who is just confessing with their mouth. This is why confession and a heart change must be coupled together. Today we'll move on to the last part of this two-part sermon and see how Paul looks at the lordship of salvation. For the Scripture says... Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father God, open our hearts and our minds to hear your word and nothing else. Open our hearts and minds to be changed by your word and nothing else. Open our hearts and minds to proclaim your word. And let it be the most prevalent thing on our lips. Let your gospel change and mold and motivate every conversation, every thought, every act, every deed. That we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. Jesus as Lord. So that the world may see it and know that you are the Son of God. We love you today. We praise you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to move, to the la- I want to move straight into the last part of our text and show you that Paul is revealing to us that lordship salvation gives us an unshakable conviction. An unshakable conviction. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is pointing back to Isaiah here. Isaiah 28, 16, which he's already done in Romans 10. And he, who, in, in Isaiah 20, 28, 16, it, is, it says, whoever believes in him will not be in haste. In our text today, Paul says, whoever believes in him. Now, who is him? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Now, shame is often something that we don't talk about. It doesn't fit easily into our life structure. It really, shame, has no place um, in in a life that takes sort of a high view of itself and the power within it. Typically, the typical unbeliever has no shame. Because as we discussed, or, or not the appropriate shame. They may be shamed by other things, but not in the appropriate way or the appropriate reason. I would contest, I would contend that often Christians are shamed about things that they do, but not in the appropriate way or for the appropriate, in the appropriate motivation. We discussed a few weeks ago how the non-believer, the unbeliever has no shame because they're always following a moving target. They can always say, oh, that's what I was trying to do. That's where I was trying to be. But for believers, there is this level of uh, potential shamefulness that comes from following an objective and holy standard. If you move the target to wherever the arrow lands, you're never bound to miss. In our sinfulness, we often change the terms of our agreement or the agreement that God has made with us. We often change the definitions of things. At one point, as as a means of progression, it sort of goes on constantly. We, We go from sin is breaking God's law. It is transgressing God's law, which is the correct definition of sin. And then we go to the idea that maybe sin is just breaking laws. And then it goes to, well, we are just a product of our environment or our situation. So we don't need to, we don't need to look too harshly at the way they respond and the way they react. This belief assumes less spiritually of people 
because they have less worldly amenities. So we excuse what the poor do while blaming the rich for everything, believing that being poor is a virtue. Friends, I will tell you, being poor is not a virtue and being rich is not automatically a sin. Both people can be caught in their own ungodliness. And they are, all, they are both held to the same standard that God has prescribed. And our environments, our environment and our situations don't change the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is everyone is in desperate need of a savior. There is an answer to that need. And every man will take account of himself unto God what he has done with what he has had on this earth. And we will see in a minute how we all start on the same and level playing field with God. We begin to ascribe psychological terms to sin. Where God tells us to abandon and run from sin, we give it a cute name so we can hold on to it a little while while we work through it. This is self-healing. Or this is winding down. Or this is how I relax. Heaven forbid we ever feel any shame for the things that we do that dishonors God. As a matter of fact, many of you might be in here hearing the word shame and thinking, this is not what he means. He means conviction. No, that's not what I mean right now. That's not what I mean. I mean shame. Although I don't think shame should be a primary motivator, friends. I think when we dishonor the Lord, we should feel a little bit more than just conviction. Conviction is right. Conviction is what motivates us. But when we dishonor the Lord, we should feel a little, feel a little bit deeper than just, I want to not do this. Especially with what all that we know about the Lord. The truth is, friends, shame is real. And although shame should not be a primary motivator for following Christ, shame is often a warning sign that we are on the wrong track. It is a red light flashing in your eyes saying, go the other way. Paul says, whoever believes in him, though, will not be put to shame. The hymn, of course, is Jesus. I want to give you three reasons. Although I don't think shame is a good motivator, I think it is a warning sign. And I do think in some instances, Christians will be put to worldly shame, which is definitely not a good motivator for change. But I want to give you three reasons why we are told we will not be put to shame. The first is this. The first reason the Christian for following Jesus, for believing in the Lord, will not be put to shame is that the gospel is objectively true and therefore will never disappoint. The gospel is objectively true and will never disappoint. I remember when I was a child, uh, uh, as, as, as young as I could desire things, I remember wanting a pair of Oakleys. Now, there's a lot of sunglass options now. At, I wouldn't buy a pair of Oakleys now. If you have them, I'm sure they're great. But oh, there were Oakleys and Ray-Bans. Those were the ones that everybody wanted. And I wanted a pair of Oakleys because they were more athletic, right? And I was the athletic guy. And <clears throat> more of my friends who were in sports were wearing Oakleys. 
And I remember trying to fill that need for Oakleys with what we called Folkleys. They were fake Oakleys. I remember that I went to Washington, D.C. as a young teenager, and I found my first pair on the street of Folkleys. And I thought, this is it. This is it. These fake Oakleys. And so I bought me a pair of $10 fake Oakleys when Oakleys were, maybe they were 15, I can't remember, but Oakleys were, that was a lot to pay for sunglasses that were fake, right? But also, Oakleys were 100 and something, 150 something dollars, and I wasn't getting Oakleys at 14 years old. Thanks, mom and dad. Just kidding. <laughs> I remember buying those Oakleys, and for a moment, I felt like I belonged. And then someone at school got a hold of them and looked at them and said, bro, these here is how I know these are fake. There's this. I don't even remember the things anymore, but there were these distinguishing characteristics. That didn't stop me because when I went to the Bahamas and a little bit later on down the road, I bought another pair of Oakleys. I remember the first pair of Oakleys that I owned. We were in Bay Springs, I think it's called Bay Springs, Mississippi, and it was at this campground. It was a youth trip. And this person was scuba diving. And we were like just sitting in the water, and he pops up out of the water, and he's got like four pairs of sunglasses in his hands. And one of the pairs of sunglasses was a pair of genuine Oakleys. Looking back, I would have punched me in the face for wearing those Oakleys. But they were Oakleys. They were like streak white, like bright white, and they were, um, they were real. They were verified. I remember wearing those things and not feeling the shame of wearing Folkleys. Now, if my family doesn't remember these Oakleys, it's because about two weeks later I lost them. So I had a habit of, this is why they wouldn't have bought me a pair of Oakleys in the first place. Because I had a habit of not keeping up with things as a young child. It was, it was those, it was, the, it was those Oakleys, that pair of Oakleys though, that gave me confidence for the first time that I was wearing the real thing. I was wearing something that could be verified. I was wearing something that if someone took off my head and said, those aren't real, they would look at the distinguishing marks. They would look at the signs around. They would look at the lenses. And they would see that it was real. Now, on a much larger scale, we have immense confidence in the gospel that we wear. Because all of the examination through countless years has been done on this gospel. And nothing significant has ever held. You might see someone say, well, there's a variation in the Bible text here or there. Or nothing significant. Nothing that changes the message of the gospel has been held it, or has been held up. It isn't necessary, friends, to be a folkly wearer, to be a poser, or to overcompensate. We have the real thing. This is why, because the gospel is objectively true, this is why I can get up here and preach every week as a confident Preacher, as I just proclaimed the words that the Bible has. This is why that when we share the gospel with our friends, although there might be all the awkwardness of life revolving around that moment of sharing and proclaiming the gospel, 
We will not be ashamed of the words that we are saying because they are gospel. Friends, and they are true. Friends, I want to tell you, and this is our shame concerning the gospel is more indicative of our heart than it is the message of the gospel. If there is any shame in the message of the gospel, if there is any dumbing down as people try to do in the message of the gospel, it is more indicative of a heart or a lack of heart change than it is the gospel itself. Excuse me. It is completely indicative of that. Confidence in preaching and gospel presentation or in anything else related to Christ. Friends, as the world changes, we can speak boldly and confidently about generational truths. Truths established before the foundation of the world. Because the gospel is objectively true and doesn't change. Now here's something that is absolutely important to this. You can't speak to anything if you don't know that truth. You can't speak with the same authority if you don't know that truth. So not only to the glory of Jesus is it important that we understand and learn the Scriptures, but it is important because we can't adequately and have the same amount of confidence uh, and in a confident manner speak to the truth of the Gospel if we don't know it. Friends, the people of God will not be put to shame because the Gospel is true. And at the end of the day, when every man gives account of himself... We will stand firm because we have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not be put to shame. We will not be put to shame. And this is the second thing that you need to see. We will not be put to shame because sanctification shifts our actions towards God's approval. Sanctification shifts our action towards God's approval. We slowly begin to stop seeking the world's approval and we begin to live for the approval of God. Here is why this is important, friends. If we are seeking the approval of the world while growing in Christ, the things of Christ will not garner the approval of the world. So we will constantly be put to shame. If we are seeking the approval of those around us while we are growing in Christ, there is going to be an ever-growing conflict because we will not get that approval because the, the, the message of the gospel is contrary to the message of this system of the world. But as we slowly stop seeking the world's approval, and if we, as we begin to grow in the approval of the Lord, we will not be put to shame. Friends, I said this earlier and I will explain it again. The world lives in general and generally with <coughs> no shame. But it's based on no good reason. A lot of times Christians are accused of having faith in faith. But I will tell you that the system of the world is just faith in faith. It is not faith in anything. It's faith because you believe it to be true. Or because you want it to be true. Do you understand what I mean? The system of the world is faith in faith. It is ascribing whatever you want to about yourself. And believing it to be true. And believing that to be okay. There is no shame when you have faith in faith. Again, because the mark keeps moving. We live in shame now as a Christian because the world does not approve of what God ascribes. The world does not approve of what God has called us to do. But even though we live in shame now, often in this world, we will not later because we have faith in someone. 
We have faith in something that lasts. We have faith in Jesus Christ. And what we have faith in is true. So the way we live our life is an ever-growing testimony of our acceptance, our confession, and our growth in objective truth. Which is our testimony. Which is a testimony of our salvation. It is a testimony of a new life. We discussed some of these things in our confession are in, in, our, in the things we confess in our last point, our first point last week. But what we, what we do in this life says a lot about that that is within us, friends. Do we live for achievement, worldly achievement to our spiritual shame? Do we live for financial success and stability to our spiritual shame? Do we live for our family and our friends to our spiritual shame? Whatever it may be. Friends, when our motivation, when our mentality shifts to God's approval and we begin to do the things that He commands and requires, there, that, is the most, that is the closest you will become to shameless in this world. When I think about this shift to God's approval, I think about this video I've watched of Nick Foles. He was basically a backup quarterback for a long time and he got to come in and uh, take on the role of starting quarterback for the Phillies. Uh, not the Phillies, the Eagles, the Philadelphia Phillies is a baseball team. See, I don't, I don't, sports, I don't even pay attention anymore. The Philadelphia Eagles. And I don't know all the background of this. I think, I believe he won them a Super Bowl. And I don't know the background to this video exactly. Sorry. I don't know the background of this video exactly. But I've watched this video a hundred times. It comes up in my timeline. I share it on Facebook. I share it every time I see it. I think at this point he was going through injury. And he was being interviewed and he was asked about playing in the Super Bowl. And the quote, there was a quote in there that he said that struck me as a person who trusts in the Lord. Whose motivation is for God's approval and not the approval of man. He said, if I smile when I hold up that trophy, talking about the Super Bowl trophy, it is because I have Christ and I know that I don't need that trophy this man was in the highest position of his sport. He could not, he was a starting quarterback for a Super Bowl team, Super Bowl winning team. He could not have reached a higher goal uh, as the leader of that team. And his conclusion was if I hold up the trophy, I'm not smiling because, what I, because of what I've accomplished, I'm smiling because I don't need it. I'm smiling because I'm seeking God's approval in everything else. So a Super Bowl trophy or a new job or a raise or your kids doing this or that, it's all just icing on the cake. Because the approval of God is what I found my joy in. <clears throat> on the opposite end of that, friends, it's also all of these other worldly things, all of these other aspirations are not something we find our shame in. Listen, if we work hard, if we are seeking God's approval, and we work hard to the glory of the Lord, and we never become a millionaire, there's no shame in that. If we are seeking God's approval, and we work hard to the glory of the Lord, and we're still poor, there is no shame in that. If we work hard, to the glory of the Lord, and we're still seeking God's approval, and we don't get that 
bonus. We don't get that job. There's no shame in that. Because our worth, our motivation, our end game is not found in what we have or what we can do on this earth. Sanctification shifts our actions and our thoughts towards God's approval and not the approval of man. When our mind shifts, our work shifts, our priority shifts, our focus shifts, and it's on Christ, shame ever decreases. And as shameful acts decrease, we become ever more a shining light for our Creator. Our wives and husbands, they are called blessed because of us. Our children imagine us when they think of heroes. And those around us aren't ashamed to call us brother or sister or friend. There is no shame for those who trust in Christ because He is who He says He is. But because our works also model Him and lead us to glory and not shame. And there's one more under this point. And that is we may be exposed to shame in this life, but we will be covered in glory in the next. Friends, the gospel is offensive. Therefore, it will offend. Can I tell you though, there is no shame in losing everything in this world for the sake of Christ. There is no shame in losing popularity, jobs, even freedoms for the sake of eternity. For the sake of losing everything for Christ. Friends, if we give up everything we have now for Christ, He will give us everything He has in eternity. We should, as best as we can, work to not compile shame on shame. But trust in the Lord and receive the glory of knowing Him. No matter where you've been or what you've done, how shameful you may think your past is, there is no going back with Christ, only moving forward. No fretting on the day, days behind, only moving forward to His glory. We strive towards Him. We, tr- we strive to grow in the Spirit of God and in living for Him. Friends, I am convinced, and you may not see it yet, but I think you will, that we are headed for days in this country where it will become ever increasingly more difficult to follow the Lord, to the glory of the Lord, and live a normal life. I am convinced that we may be in for a great tribulation as believers in this country. But do you know what the Lord says in Revelation? He says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. No worldly trouble or joy, friends, is worth giving up all that we have in Christ. Stay faithful. Stay faithful to the true gospel. Stay faithful to him alone. 
Stay faithful because of His objectivity, because of His truth. This foundational truth, we will not be put to shame. Church, that we would be found in Christ alone. I'm going to have to go through this last point very quickly so we can have time for everything today, but hopefully it won't jumble up too much. But I want you to look lastly at a universal commission. A universal commission. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just for a point of reference so you can look at it later, verse 13 comes from Joel 2.32. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this seems to fly in direct contradiction with much of what we've talked about in Romans. It seems to fly in direct contradiction to what Roman, uh, Paul talked about in Romans 9. That God is sovereign over salvation. That He is the Alpha and the Omega of salvation. But we have to ask ourselves, does it? We spent most of Romans 9 speaking on the truth of God's complete control in salvation. Romans 9.18, when discussing how we are saved, or He saved some and then hardened Pharaoh's heart um, so that he could not believe. God has mercy on, Romans 9.18 says, God has mercy upon whom He has mercy upon, and He hardens whom He hardens. We know that salvation is the Lord's, right? What does this mean then? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I have three wonderful thoughts to help you answer that question. And I mean wonderful. Number one, it means innumerable redeemed. Innumerable redeemed. Countless from every tribe and every tongue redeemed. Not just a nation, but an entire world. As a matter of fact, we have to understand the context of verse 16, verse 13 by taking into account verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. One of the greatest issues that Paul dealt with at his time was Jewish elitism, where God's chosen people weren't quite ready to let others into the fold. But Paul says here that through the Holy Spirit that more than just one nation will be saved. What he is saying is is that not just Jews, but anyone and everyone. This is not a religion just for a Levite. It's not a religion for a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe. It's not a religion for just a Jew. There is no special race. <clears throat> and the count of heaven will be innumerable. Filled with Salvations to the glory of the Lord. Because the call of salvation is to every nation, tribe, and tongue. But because of what we know about the Scriptures, it's also like this. Imagine that I wanted to go to a concert. It was a concert I had been waiting to go to all of my life. But there were other countless other people who had also been waiting to go to that concert. Imagine the only person that could give out tickets to that concert was the concert promoter. So, in preparation for that concert, I dressed up as I would have dressed if I was going to the concert. Or maybe even as that band. I had a, a playlist that only consisted of that band. And I listened to it day in and day out. 
I did everything I could to show my fandom to that band. But at the end of the day, the concert promoter did not give me a ticket. The call of that concert was to everyone. Every person. Every person who knew of that concert. But the ability, the access, was only to those who had the ticket. This is a small scale of how to explain the sovereignty of God and how to explain the innumerable amount of people who will be with Him in heaven. The truth is, salvation has always been the Lord's. But don't let that don't let don't be mistaken in thinking that God's call to salvation is not for everybody. So we have an innumerable redeemed. We have an uncommon body, an uncommon body. Let's be honest, the body of Christ is made up of all sorts of people. I'm not saying this to be funny at all. I know without a doubt there is no way that many of you would put up with me if it weren't for Christ. Number one, because if you think sanctified Bryce is difficult, just imagine. But number two, the, the eyes of God, the heart of God, gives us grace where the lack thereof would cause us to pull away, would cause us to be met with derision. This is what makes the church wonderful. Christianity, friends, is not seen through clearer eyes if you're white or if you're black. It's not understood better by a poor man or a rich man. It is not a religion better understood by men than women. By the old more than the young. Christianity is understood and seen best by the redeemed. And all of our crazy and unique and quirky things make us a well-rounded people. And this is truly best seen in the local church. Do you want to know what is so glorious about the gospel? Especially in the context that Paul is presenting it. The Jews and the Greeks couldn't have been more diametrically opposed. They could not have been more opposed to each other. Their politics would have been different. Their understanding of faith would have been different. Their understanding of religion. Their understanding of God or gods would have been different. You name it. And Paul, through the Spirit, says there is no distinction. The Jews would have historically worked harder in, in obeying the one true God. The Greeks would have, been, would have worked harder in following their polytheistic way of thinking. And Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there is no distinction. He is saying that God shows no favoritism between the two. But I think that there is something else. I think Paul is saying that the bond of Christ erased the uncommon reality of our pre-Christ life. The bond of Christ, the redemption that is found only in Christ sets us, it's not, like it's, it's not like it makes the reality of our differences go away, but it sets us all at the same <coughs> starting point. So that our differences, in essence, are almost indistinguishable 
if we are all growing in the bond of Christ. We may be a little more conservative than another person or we may have different ambitions than another. One may think the Beatles are great and another may see them as an average boy band. You may like sports and the other person may be wrong. But our distinctions, our distinctions outside of who we are in Christ should never trump our commonality in Christ. We are different, but that's what makes us better. As proof, almost every person in this room is in essence different than their spouse. Almost every person in this room is almost polar opposite than their spouse. It's not always true, but almost always true. And yet God works through our collective weaknesses and strengths to strengthen each other through not only our similarities, but especially through our differences. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. That is not a pretty way of sharpening each other. That is conflict. That is sparks. That is differences. That is friction. But that makes the sharpest sword. It's almost as if God has planned to use our strengths and our weaknesses to counter the weaknesses and strengths of those who are part of our faith Family. These differences, when we are walking in the Spirit of God, are used then for our sanctification in Christian marriage and in the church. It is true that these differences are used this way because of our common salvation. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, The man, Jesus Christ. Friends, we have one origin story. One origin story. Although your story looks different than mine, ultimately, it is the same for those who are in Christ. Here's how it begins. No matter my background, no matter where I come from, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Christ, in His abundant goodness, has met God in His abundant goodness has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. If I then confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved. From myself, from my sin, from the wrath of God that is ahead. This is confirmed because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We start in the same position, we work through the same issues, albeit with a different worldview, albeit nuanced differently. And we end in the same place. There is one mediator between God and man. Friends, I want to tell you, there are going to be people who try to tell you or explain to you that one way is different for one person than it is 
for another. That one way is good for this person and one way is good for that person and this way is good for you. But the one who will not be put to shame understands the reality of the gospel and that is there is one God whereby we must be saved. Salvation is the Lord's alone. Salvation is the Lord's alone. You want to talk about peace that passes all understanding? When our lives and our minds and our hearts are geared towards the approval of God, our actions are forced and focused on the approval of God, shame fades away because the results are already decided and are already at hand. And that is the glory of the Lord. And the lifting up of the saints of God. Would you pray with me today? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much that we have this opportunity to come and meet with you. To worship you. To follow you. Would you bless our church? Would you bless our church as we recommit our lives to each other? Would it not be something that is done in hollow works or for selfish reasons? Would it not be something that we do half-heartedly or without purpose, but that we commit to you and to your church, to your body, to the glory of the Lord, so that we can build each other up, that we can sharpen each other to the glory of the Lord? So that we can proclaim the gospel to the glory of the Lord. So that we can make disciples to the glory of the Lord. And then one day we will meet with you in the air. And we will praise you to the glory and the glory of the Lord alone. Lord, help the motivation of our lives be the glory of the Lord. The heart of God. The approval of God.